Hello, and welcome to Dodecahedron, a podcast by, for, and about role players. I'm Jess Vetters, and this week we're doing something a little different. Colin is out, so I'm flying solo, as it were. And uh, I'll be taking a few listener questions at the end, but today's topic is going to be a particularly interesting one at least in terms of how I'm going to have to edit this thing. Because what I'm talking about today is all of the little supplemental stuff that DM can bring into a game. Now, this can be a wide assortment of things from maps to sound cues to foley work and all sorts of stuff in between. Interspersed throughout the episode, you'll probably be hearing me dropping in a few little bit of bits of sound cues, just kind of examples of things that you can use, but before we jump into that, uh, let me tell you guys a little bit about uh, how my last week has been going. Since you heard me last, I ran another professional DM game, which still feels very strange to say, especially while I'm talking to myself, but... I noticed something a little peculiar about this one. We had three recurring players and one newbie, but two of my recurring players chose to roll up new characters instead of continuing on with the ones from the last time we had played. Now, as the storyteller, as the DM, I had been hoping for a little bit of continuity. I had worked it into the story, uh, but when... I had players who chose, or by necessity had to play, new characters. I had to kind of improvise a little bit, had to roll on the fly with a very, very small part of the storytelling. And that is how these players, or rather their characters, all knew each other. And for anybody who has ever run a game, especially when it comes to something like Dungeons & Dragons, figuring out what the relationship is between your characters is always, always going to be one of those tricky little sticking places that you run into. It's what facilitates the uh, stereotype as D&D parties being a whole bunch of murder hobos just wandering from one place to the next, because it's very difficult to build a dungeon-based or like a one-shot or a temporary campaign built around these disparate people who the only thing that they really have in common is that their job, as it were, is to go out into the world and solve people's problems, whether by violence or more creatively applied violence. I mean, that's sure, that's really just, at least in terms of sword and sorcery, fantasy role-playing, one of the biggest tools in our box. It all really comes back down to who needs hitting, or killing, or removing. Which is kind of an endemic and unfortunate side effect of the way that we tell stories, and definitely something that I'll want to get into later, but for now, I'm going to go back to the main problem that I was talking about. Essentially, the way that I ended up handling it which is not the way that I would have preferred to in most situations, is I kind of just hand-waved the whole thing and made them travelers who had met along the road and simply decided to travel together out of safety and convenience or 
honor-bound duty, what have you. This sort of contrivance works sometimes, but not always, and I would actually say not often. What you tend to run into with characters like this that have no need to move together is actually something that I dealt with in this particular session, where one character who had no real allegiance to the other people in his group, other than the people sitting around the table were his friends, uh, decided for a while not to go into the dungeon in the first place, which to me was pretty much the one variable that I didn't plan for. I had ideas of how to handle any split paths or split parties while they were inside, but the idea that someone might not want to go in in the first place admittedly eluded me. Getting around that was honestly a stroke of genius from one of the other players more than from myself, but in the end, he did go in, and the adventure did continue, and everything ended up pretty alright. I wasn't as proud as I wanted to be of the story that I told this time around. Granted, when I say that, I am very rarely, if ever, as proud of the story as I want to be. I want everything that I run to be a well-oiled machine of planning and improvisation coming together to make the players feel like they are truly invested and having an impact on the world. What I ended up with this time was a a dungeon that was a bit too spread out, and a path that was open enough to allow for improvisation as they went along, but so open, in fact, that they missed a couple of parts of the story. And as the DM, as any DM probably knows if they've been doing this for any length of time, that's not a great feeling. Knowing that you've left something on the table, knowing that your players missed something because you didn't signpost it correctly, or because you didn't place it in enough areas, is rough. And that's one of the things that I want to talk to as we get into this, but what I'd like to talk about more is the one major success that I feel that I had. And that is what I literally, physically brought to the table. Now, this is something that not all DMs can do because of things like budget constraints or time or space. Sometimes it's just not going to work out. But I was lucky enough, and we're playing Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, I was lucky enough to have access to a second player's handbook and to Xanathar's Guide to Everything, one of their new expansion books, and I could physically bring three books along with my map and the pushpin minis system that I've been working on. Um, and I improved the spacing of the map so everything actually worked out this time where I didn't have players that got stuck behind each other in hallways during combat. I didn't have situations where people forgot which pin was supposed to be them because I now had more colors and also a couple fewer players, which admittedly helped more than I thought it would, at least in that respect. Where I could have still improved, however, is in all of the little things. 
I set the campaign during a rainstorm, for example. What I want, what I truly, genuinely want, is to be able to bring in, you know, some little speakers and hook them up to my phone and have a little soundboard going so that I can tap a button and there's the rainstorm. Tap another one and there's the creaking of the door. And there are systems in place that let you do this. I'm about to give one some free advertising because I've seen their ads and I will say I have not used this system myself, so take this with a big old grain of salt. So if you Google D&D soundboard, Sirenscape is one of the first to come up. And I've actually seen an ad for this before and it looked interesting. Yet the ads that they have are cheesy and very strange and don't actually make the product look as interesting as it could be, but something like this, something like Sirenscape, would absolutely help to increase the ambiance. And if you can add in your own sound effects and build in your own musical cues, then you've got a lot to work with. The musical cues are a particularly interesting thing. You, uh, at the beginning and the end of every episode of Dodecahedron, you hear a track called Cool Cats by an artist called Kevin MacLeod who runs Incompetech.com. Now this is a massive library of royalty-free music that you can grab and use however you please, as long as there's proper attribution and, like, I mean, basically anything that follows the whole Creative Commons rule set. Mixing the music with the soundboard in a role-playing setting can immediately build a sense of ambiance and world that is incomparable. And it helps so much in letting your players know that what they are doing is part of a story, and it is part of this epic quest, or this small mystery or whatever sort of adventure that you're running, because there is always something out there that you can build in. One of the best examples that I have seen in terms of a recorded game session sort of media thing, um, obviously Harmon Quest does it well, but their production value as far as what anyone can expect is through the roof, because Half of the show is animated, and that takes time and money that no normal DM is ever going to have access to. However, Griffin McElroy, especially in running the balance arc of the Adventure Zone, slowly built this beautiful tapestry of music and descriptive language that, all put together, helps to draw not only the listeners, but also the players, into the world. And this is done with a lot of very cinematic language. It's one of the things that he particularly takes advantage of. Things like... And then, we pan up. And we see a 13th plane Little descending. visual cues in your language can help with things like this, but so much more than that is just the way that everything is built together. If, say, a fight is about to start, he'll click into a musical cue. And granted, all of this is done post-production in editing, and not sitting at the table. So if you're going to do this for your own game at home, it requires a lot more planning. 
and everything that I'm saying right now will take at least some level of prep work. And for a lot of DMs out there, that is antithetical to the organic experience that you're trying to build. A lot of people like to go in and just throw something out there and see how their players react to it. But that's why I think constructing something like a soundboard is so useful. Because then, at your fingertips, you have all of this material that you can use as you wish. Say, say you are a meticulous planner, but your players are not. And you build this multi-tiered dungeon, and they go completely off the rails and decide that they're going to spend the next three sessions in town, chasing a stray cat that you mentioned offhand. You know, D&D players are flighty and delightful, and it's a big part of the reason we play the game. And this is not just D&D, this is literally every role-playing game. There is always someone at the table who, if you give them the opportunity, they will go completely off the rails. Sometimes that's great. And if you are the type of person who can put in the extra hour before the session to plan for, you know what? There is a town nearby, or there is a subway in the city that we're running around in, or the space station does have this karaoke club. Throw in just a couple of little cues, just a couple of little morsels for a player to bite down on. And I think you will see that the first time you bring this stuff in, even if it's shaky, even if you're not actually prepared for it, that level of immersion is going to keep your players so much more engaged. This is going to transition into something else that I really enjoy talking about, which is uh, it's diegetics. So diegesis is the idea that what you are experiencing in the media is a part of the world of the media. So it's that shot in the movie where you hear the music coming through the soundtrack and then the character who's driving along in the car clicks the radio and the soundtrack stops. And you realize the music that we were hearing was in the world. Or it's... Soundtracks are the easiest thing to do this with because music is so diegetic in the first place, uh, or rather it has the tendency not to be. It's why uh, when you go and see certain musicals and everybody starts singing and dancing, it feels so jarring because it's not natural to the world. It's just all of a sudden we sing because we're in a musical and that's what we're supposed to do and when it's done, we stop. Um, I had the chance to see a Broadway show called Come From Away fairly recently, and that was one where, while it was still very engaging, the music was not diegetic at all. It was, alright, we're gonna have a couple of bits of dialogue, and then, oh, the lights changed, and everybody's gonna sing and dance now. Then the lights change again, and we go back to normal speech. In fact, some of the only good examples that I have seen of diegetic music in musical format is uh, the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or of Scrubs. 
TV that's not normally musical can do it better because you're forced to come up with a reason why suddenly everyone is singing and dancing. But musicals aside, we're talking about role-playing. When it comes to diegetic soundtrack in RPs, that's stuff like you walk into the tavern and the lute and flute bard music starts playing. Because you're in a tavern now and that's what's there. This also applies to things like, now you're in a cave so I'll play the creepy stalactite dripping sound effect, or the bat screech. That's not necessarily soundtrack, but it is foley work that you can put in that makes the world feel more real and more lived in. This is not necessarily to get your player's blood pumping, but it is to help them feel like they are a part of a living world. And at the end of the day, that's really what I'm getting at. What you want, or at least what I want when I'm running a game, is for my players to have that line between their reality that they are sitting in and their character's reality that they are acting in blur just a little bit. Obviously, depending on content, you never want it to blur too much because you never want people to get lost in the sauce, as it were. I cannot believe I just said Lost in the Sauce on a role-playing game podcast. That's a, hmm, that's a thing. I'm leaving it in. But what you do want is for them to be able to, if it's what they're looking for, slide into that escapist fantasy a little bit harder. There's nothing wrong with, and in fact there are a lot of things good about using role-playing as some happy escapist fun. I think it's why a lot of us do it, and I think there's a lot to be gained from stepping away from your real-life stresses and your real-world problems and being a part of a reality where you can affect change on some immediately noticeable level. And I think this goes for all games, whether it's the power fantasy hero simulators of Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or what have you, or the more gritty, quote-unquote realistic, you know, the odds are stacked against you stuff, like Call of Cthulhu or World of Darkness or anything along those lines. There is a lot to be said about letting your players not be themselves for a couple of hours. And anything in your toolbox that you can use to help make that happen will not only help your players, but it will also serve your story. Because if they're more invested, they are more likely to give themselves over wholly to the world and the fiction that you have established. And at the end of the day, I think that's the most useful thing that we can do. It's what we're all looking for. We all sit around the table because we want a story. What we want to get out of that story might be completely different. Some of us just want to hit stuff. Some of us want to explore deep character moments, and if we do hit stuff, maybe that's more of a distraction than a good thing. The point is, very, very, very few players are ever going to listen to a soundtrack that you start putting on and think, man, this is just really pulling me out of it. That said, I will leave you with, or at least for this section, 
I will leave you with a couple of composer suggestions. First and foremost, I'm going to name drop Howard Shore. Howard Shore is, as most of you will probably know, the composer behind the Lord of the Rings movies. And when it comes to fantasy, is kind of unbeatable. John Williams is similar in this regard, where the music will be very recognizable, even if not everyone knows immediately why. If you're running a horror game, I would like to suggest the Obscure soundtrack. That's the soundtrack from the game Obscure by Olivier de Riviere. There's a very interesting band called Audio Machine that does a lot of epic orchestral sort of music to go back into the fantasy genre. But that can also work for particularly interesting moments in modern roleplay or science fiction. It's sort of an all-around thing. This one might be a little bit surprising, but the band Justice has a lot of really powerful feeling tracks that can really get you into a moment. As always, and as many of you will know, looking for soundtracks from things that you already know you like, uh, games, movies, anime, anything that has the right feel for what you're looking for is always going to be a solid bet. Things like the soundtrack to Quella Magi Madoka Magica, which you are hearing now. Or perhaps this particular track from the Near Automata soundtrack. Or perhaps you'd like to use one of my seminal favorites, Battle Without Honor or Humanity. Whatever you choose, the most important thing is to make sure that it fits in with your world, and it's something that you can pull out pretty easily to help your players figure out what exactly they are in for. With that, I'm going to transition into some listener questions. Our first couple come from my co-host Colin, who, uh, as I stated earlier, could not make it in for this recording session, but wanted to leave us with a couple of interesting questions. The first is, how do you handle in-character mistakes? And I guess this sort of transitions into, what if you do something in-character that you cannot undo, but realize was against the character to have done in the first place? And this is a really interesting question, more on the player side than the DM side, which we don't get into as much as I would like. But if you make what you consider to be a mistake in-character, there are a couple of options that you have at your disposal depending on your DM. The first is always, if you notice, mm, I just did something that doesn't feel right, ask to retcon. There's nothing wrong with going back and saying, oh man, okay, no, that thing that I just said, my character wouldn't say that. I, I shouldn't have done that. Can we mulligan that? And most DMs are going to be pretty okay with that, because... As long as what you're doing serves the story and the character, there's no reason not to. The other option that you have, if you have noticed something that kind of feels wrong or feels out of place, but it happened a few sessions ago or it happened far earlier in the day and now things have happened in a way that that is integral to the story, you have to justify that retroactively. 
which is not always easy to do. Say you have a paladin who is lawful good and everything that they have been working toward is in service of justice and honor and goodness. But two sessions ago, you decapitated a bandit leader who was pleading for mercy. Well, maybe that's out of line with what your character should have done. Maybe you did that because you were having a bad day or something like that. There are a thousand reasons why something out of character can happen. And now it is on you to say, well, why did I do that? Why did I lead my character down this path? And what does that mean for them? It's not necessarily about correcting the mistake. It is about accepting this aberrant behavior that you have committed and folding that into who the character is now. And this is something that can actually build character growth, because maybe the character is as conflicted about the event as you are. Maybe killing that particular person while he was down, maybe that's something that plagues you a little bit. Maybe it's something that, as you move forward, you have to reconcile with yourself. Now, this is a very different story when it's something like, I had an argument with another character... And now the relationship between the two is altered in a way that doesn't serve the story or that doesn't help anything go forward. That can be a little trickier, and at that point, it's best to take everybody at the table who was involved and maybe everybody who wasn't, because if they're at the table, even as observers, they are still involved, and just have a quick discussion of, hey... Last night, Grapthor the Barbarian said some things that I was not terribly pleased with after the fact. And I would just like to go on record to say if we could kind of sweep that under the rug and forget that I implied that Elendbulflel, the elf's mother, was a hamster and his father smelled of elderberries... Uh, that would be great, because Elandalflel and Gropthor should still be friends, and it doesn't help the story if they're not. When it comes down to all of these, like, interpersonal conflicts, one of the things that we keep coming back to is you have to be willing to communicate. Because at the end of the day, as important as your story and your characters and your world are... They are not as important as making sure that everyone playing the game you are playing, because it is, at the end of the day, still a game, is having fun. Our other question came from Discord, and this one is from uh, Krav, who wanted to know about settings and world building. And this is something that we have touched on in previous episodes a little bit, but plan on having a much larger episode about in the future, where we go more into how to actually build a setting, but I'm going to give you my very, 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 very condensed two-minute version of what I do when I'm building a world. There are a few very key questions that you have to answer when you're creating a setting for a role-playing game. The first and the most important is, what sort of conflict does this world provide for the characters? Because 
at its core, every story is about conflict. This conflict can be pretty much anything from... The warlock is trying to dredge his otherworldly patron from the other realm and use that power to take over the world, and now we have to stop it. Or it can be something like, this megacorporation stole one character's father's designs for nanomachines and are planning to use them to enslave humanity, so we have to stop that megacorporation. Or it could be, a werewolf ate my dog, and... I'm collecting my friends in my small hometown to go out and hunt this very singular werewolf. It all comes down to conflict, and a lot of pre-built settings have a lot of this stuff already established in it. Like if you're playing in Eberron or Galarian, just to name drop the two settings that I'm currently in as a player, there's a lot of conflict built in just in the backstory, and you can mine that very easily. I said I was going to do the very quick two-minute version. This is already blowing that out of the water. Because the second question that you really want to get into, the one that I think is equally important if you are building your own setting, is what makes the world feel real? And sometimes this is as simple as knowing where are the farms? Where does the food come from? Is this a post-scarcity society where everything comes out of replicators? And as long as you have enough organic material, you can make whatever you want. Or is it a hard scrabble Game of Thrones-esque dirt farmers and nobles living in squalor castles and all of that nice little nitty-gritty side detail? This is not stuff that will inform the conflict of your story as much as it will inform where your characters come from and the sorts of troubles that they have to overcome in addition to whatever the main conflict of the story is. And I think a good third thing to keep in mind if you are setting up a setting is the simple question of scope. Because obviously, every world is a world unless you are doing something peculiar. Like, you can very easily say, well, my characters are in a simulation, so nothing exists out of this small town. That is a valid opportunity to take but then you have to you have you have to make assumptions about what is outside of the simulation what happens if they do reach the outskirts of the town does it build in more or does it loop them back in and erase their memories or if you're dealing with a larger more modern world but you want to keep everything set in say new orleans what if a character decides to drive out to the bayou? What's there? How big is your world and how much of it do you want your players to see? And I think if you keep those three questions in mind, you should be able to establish the basics of what your setting should be. But obviously this is something that we'll go into more at length in a future episode, so very good question. And that's going to do it for us. Uh, this is a little bit of a shorter episode, um, but there's a lot of editing that I put into it, so I hope you enjoyed all those little sounds and music cues that I snuck in. 
If you want to know where any of that stuff came from in particular, you can check out the description of this podcast, and I will put in the titles of anything I can remember. But you can also message Dodecahedron on Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash dodecapodcast. You can email us at dodecapodcast at gmail.com. You can do that if you have any questions about anything role-playing related or about episodes that we've done or about episodes that we want to do in the future. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or Podbean or anywhere else you might have found us. Um, I'm working on getting us onto Google Play. That should be happening in a couple of days. And, yeah, Colin is normally the one who does the outro stuff. I just do the little housekeeping bits at the end there. Uh, Like us on Facebook, email us, subscribe to us, leave us a rating if you can. That would be great and always helps out new podcasts like ours. And tell a friend. You know, if you've got a gaming group that you like to play with and you want to share some of our insights with them or think that anything we have said might be relevant to a friend of yours or a gaming buddy or a stranger on the internet, please, if you're enjoying us, share us. That's always helpful. I'm going to stop shilling now, and I'm going to let you get back to your life and your day, so um, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.